Well, if you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we will work our way through this sermon series of 1 Peter. If you're using those Black Pew Bibles, that can be found on page 954, and we will look at verse 18 to the end of the chapter, 18 to 25. Chapter numbers are in large bold print, and then there are smaller little numbers next to the words that will help you orient yourself in the Bible. So those are the verse numbers. Today's passage presents problems. Immediately, it presents the problem of slavery. It talks about suffering, which is a problem for all of us. And it concludes talking about sin. Three problems the problem of slavery, the problem of suffering, the problem of sin. I'm assuming some of you in this room have heard others say that the Bible condones slavery. That's a problem, if it does. We want to address that problem. I'm sure some of you have also thought of the question, why, if God is good, does he allow suffering in this world? That's a problem. God is good. He's gracious. He's loving. He's all-powerful. Why can't he just stop suffering, snap his fingers, and put it to an end? The problem of suffering. And how about the problem of sin? your sins. The solution for each of these is one. In one word, our text says, Christ. The problem of slavery is answered by looking to Christ. The problem of suffering is answered by looking to Christ. The problem of sin is answered by looking to Christ. Let's look at Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 18, follow along as I read. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
And that, my friends, ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word. And my prayer is that he will write Christ on your hearts in this message. You will think much of Jesus. That's the point. Jesus is the solution to slavery, suffering, and sin. If you want to summarize 1 Peter chapter 3, 18, or chapter 2, 18 to 25, Jesus Christ is the solution to slavery, to suffering, and sin. How? Let me tell you before you fall asleep, get distracted, here's the, here's the how, here's the why. Christ became a slave, Christ endured suffering, and Christ carried our sins. That's what our text says. Christ became a slave. Christ endured suffering. Christ carried our sins. He died on a cross in order that you and I might be united to him in all things. So the solution to all of these problems is union with, participation in Jesus Christ. I'm going to take this passage and just break it into three parts. We're going to look at verse 18 and the problem of slavery. We're going to look at verse 20 and 21 and look at the problem of suffering. And then we're going to look at verses 22 to 25 and look at the problem of sin. And in each case, I would like to propose to you that Peter wants you to see Christ as the solution to each of these problems. The whole thrust of this section is to say, look at Christ, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Number one, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The text is translated as servants, but I keep using the word slavery because I think servants is a little too soft. The word here is not one that equally translates into an English word. It's household slave. It's a mouthful, but that's why I would say slavery. What does Peter say about slavery in this text? End it? Abolish it? Fight it? Is he condoning it? He just acknowledges that it exists. And then he says, slaves, submit to your masters. Anybody find that a problem? Well, the answer is yes. Lots of people do find this a problem. And if you're not aware, many people object to the whole Bible because of things like this. And there are so many good things that we could be talking about this morning that we're just not gonna. But in case you're interested... We could talk about how there are so many Bible passages that specifically teach Christians how, if they can, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, by the way, be free from slavery. It's not encouraging or promoting slavery. One of the first stories of the Bible is God setting a bunch of slaves free. That's the book of Exodus. God is not for slavery. And we could go all over the Bible to make that point, but we're not going to. We could take a look at historical context And see, what kind of slavery is Peter talking about to make sure that we have in our understanding how this is different from the slavery in America and the slave trade from Africa? 
That's really helpful, actually. We're not going to spend time doing that, though. The difference between Roman slavery and African slave trade is numerous. And the kind of slavery that Peter's talking about here is not just like that, but it's not great either, by the way. It's pretty obvious when he talks about unjust masters and how difficult and painful it is to be a slave. He's telling them that he knows. He's well aware. We could also talk about how Christians have used the Bible, specifically this Bible passage, to encourage and promote slavery. Christians have stood up in front of churches and said, see, God condones slavery, encourages it, knows that it's going to exist. So if some of you are church members and you have slaves, go on having slaves. Christians have done that time and time again. Notice Peter doesn't do any of these things. He doesn't give us a history of Roman Empire slavery. He doesn't try to say everything that can be said about slavery. What is Peter doing? He's in the middle of a discussion about how to live as a faithful exile. That's what he's doing, how to live. And so he talks specifically to slaves, saying the same thing that he said to everybody else regarding subjecting themselves to every human, especially the Roman emperor. Honor everyone, he says in verse 17. Everyone. Submit yourselves to every created person, verse 13. And here he speaks specifically to slaves, how they should live. And the answer for how they should live is like Christ, follow Christ, look to Christ. So I think the best apologetic and lesson for life is to follow Peter's train of thought. Have you ever heard the objection that the Bible condones or includes slavery so we should throw it out? If you're in a conversation like this, I would encourage you to not necessarily feel inadequate because you don't know the history of Roman Empire slavery. You don't know the history of how slavery was different in this context versus African slave trade. Or you don't understand all of the Bible passages that talk about slavery. But you know what all of you in this room can say and should do? Look at Jesus. He became a slave. Let me illustrate it like this. There's a good friend of mine who's pastoring in Washington, D.C., And while he was living in D.C., before being a pastor, he's riding on the metro. It's uh, the Chicago version of the L, right? A subway system. And he sits down, he's reading his Bible on his way to work. And a guy sits down next to him and says, hey, interesting, reading the Bible. I've got some questions about the Bible. And the guy's like, sweet, great opportunity to talk about Jesus. And this guy is like a scholar of Islam just wiping this guy off the floor with all of his facts and knowledge and history. And the guy says he felt like a complete idiot. Just, I don't know what to say. I'm not prepared for this. Have you ever felt that way? And then he said this. His stop was about to come. He had maybe a couple minutes. And he knew that he didn't have all the answers. He was not going to be quick off the top of his tongue. He said, I don't know. 
glorious, beautiful. But I know this even better. That's a simple little move. I don't know. But I do know this. I don't know. Learn this little pattern. I don't know. But I do know this. All of you could do this. I don't know all of the ins and outs about slavery in the Bible. I don't know all the ins and outs about why Christians had slaves. But I do know this. Christ, the God who controls everything, became a slave for us, willingly. And the reason I follow Jesus is because I know that God became a slave for me. To set me free. And then, by the way, if you start connecting the dots in your own heart and in the world and in human history and in the hearts of the people you're talking to, you might start to see that the power of the gospel and pointing people to the incredible self-sacrificial humility of Christ, and they see that, it starts to change people's hearts about everything, including slavery. Which is why, all throughout human history, Christians have been at the forefront of ending slavery and not using the Bible for the purpose of continuing slavery. William Wilberforce was radically transformed by the gospel because he knew the power of the gospel and wanted to set slaves free. So he did not just create an act to end the slave trade in government. He then afterwards started to raise funds, what would have been the equivalent of just millions upon millions of dollars with his friends and his network and his resources and self-sacrificially paid for the release of slaves because he knew that people would start getting upset about the economic disturbance it would cause. So he made sure that that would not be a problem for both the slaveholders and the slaves. The power of the gospel, when someone so loves you to become a slave for you, it changes your heart. It makes you think different about humans and about money, and then you start to be an advocate against slavery. Or in this particular case, if you are a slave, it gives you the power to deal with the problem of slavery. This is specifically what Peter is referring to. Slaves, be subject to your masters. And do this with fear, is the literal word, with, with fear, reverent awe, and respect of them, not only the good ones, but even the bad ones, the crooked ones. It's the word we get scoliosis from, a, a wicked, crooked slave master, which there are plenty of examples in the Roman Empire of wicked, crooked slaves. There's a problem that Peter's audience is dealing with, crooked slave masters. And the solution that he gives them is do you know what kind of injustice your Savior endured for you? So that verse 16 is true. You're free. You're free in Christ. So now you can submit yourself for the Lord's sake, mindful of God, to this master for the sake of their salvation and honoring and glorifying God in all that you do. Solution for all of our problems is Christ. In 1856, Percy Anne Martin was a free black woman living in North Carolina. She decided on her own to get married to a slave man. An enslaved man in North Carolina meant that she was submitting herself for the purpose of love to slavery. 
In fact, there is a recorded court document of her petitioning the court, and I quote, Percy Ann Martin says, I would like to be reduced to a slave. The court then writes, she was so attached to her husband that she did not wish to be separated from him, even if it meant slavery. There is so much that's going on in this little story, but it paints a small little window into the picture of what God Almighty has done for you. A freed man, not woman, willingly chose to be reduced to the status of a slave because he was attached to his bride and never wanted to be separated from her, especially eternally. And for the sake of love, he chose slavery. If a woman in North Carolina could do that in the 1800s, how much more and how much sweeter and how much greater is the immense love of the man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I tell you, the best apologetic will always be point them to Christ, his humility, his person, his character, his love. Don't just talk about history and facts. If you never get to the glories of Christ, you will not win over the person's heart. Learn the simple little phrase, I don't know, but I do know Christ. I do know that his love for his bride is far greater than any love the world has ever seen. I do know that the solution for all sin and suffering is Christ. Point two. Verses 20, verses 20 and 21 For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, because, to this you have been called. Christ suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. The solution to the apologetic problem of slavery, lots of good things could be said, but the main thing that needs to be said is look at Christ's willingness to be a slave. Similarly, the problem of suffering is not just an intellectual philosophical problem. It's not just a time for us to sit down and talk about how God could be good and allow suffering in the world. It's time for us to sit down and look that the God of the Bible has endured suffering for you. That's precisely what Peter's move is again. The problem of slavery and enduring slavery is specifically applied now to suffering. He's still talking to these slaves, and he's referring specifically to how some of them will do the right thing. They will obey their masters, and they will suffer for it, perhaps even for being a Christian. And he's saying that it is not really great. It is not gracious. It is not commendable. There's no credit. There's no reward for suffering when you disobey your master, when you sin, when you act out. Oh, congratulations, you endured a beating because you deserved it. That's his point. But what about when you didn't deserve it? How much more difficult is it to endure suffering when you know that the suffering is not a result of your sin? That's difficult. There are many of us in this room 
that are suffering, and when we sit down and we talk through every detail, there's a lot of times when there's not a direct connection of, well, you sinned, and therefore you're experiencing this suffering. It's important to talk that through, by the way. Sometimes, some of us are suffering, and the suffering we're dealing with is a direct result of the consequence of your sin. Peter's not talking about that. He alludes to it and just says, guys, that's not that difficult. You need to just realize that this is a result of your sin. The solution to that, that's point three. Turn from your sin. There's a way to be healed from sin and therefore healed from that kind of suffering. Turn from sin. More on that in point three. But for now, point two. What about the kind of suffering when you do everything right? You look around, you ask friends and family, you say, I don't know what else to do. I've repented of everything. I've confessed everything. I've laid my soul bare before the Lord and I still am suffering. What about that? He says, look at Jesus. He's actually the only one that innocently suffered. He's the only one that really can say, I didn't do anything wrong. And he chose the life of suffering that he endured. He put himself on that path. And Peter's telling you, follow that path. Follow in his steps. The solution to slavery and the solution to slaves' suffering is look at Christ. Now, in case any of you are thinking, you know, I'm not a slave. He is still talking about all of us in this room. Every Christian, whether slave or free. He uses the phrase, when one endures. Do you see that in verse 19? When you're mindful of God, one, like anyone, when anyone endures. Now, specifically, I think he's referring to any slave that endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. But if you drop your eyes down to chapter 3, verse 8, notice the way he says, okay, I've talked about submitting to government, and I've talked about submitting to masters, I've talked about submitting to husbands, I've talked to husbands, and now, verse 8, finally, I'm talking to all of you. Have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind and all of you. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, because this is what you were called to, that you would obtain a blessing. If you keep reading the rest of the section, he then broadly applies to every single Christian. Some of you will do good and you will suffer for it. How do you endure? Following Jesus, looking to Jesus, uniting yourself to Jesus. Full identification and participation in all that is being in Christ. That's what Peter's solution is to the problem of both slavery and suffering. And it is a gracious thing. Verses 19 and 20 are bookended with that phrase. It's a gracious thing. God's grace is given to endure suffering just like Christ. So I want to encourage each of you to spend the time thinking through your individual situations. Don't just assume that you are suffering because of sin. You might be, though. Like, this takes wisdom. This takes external processing, sharing, reading scripture, talking with those who have lived life much longer than you, and sitting down and saying, do you think that this suffering is a direct co correlation to my sin? Or do you just assume that it is or isn't? You can fall off on either side of that dilemma. And I would strongly urge you to think through it. Pray about it. Let your mind be renewed by Scripture as you consider, why is it that I'm suffering?
And if you come to the conclusion that you are suffering because of God's sovereign purposes to allow that into your life, and even though you did everything good, in fact, the suffering is a direct result to a good thing you did. I stood up for the truth, and I got persecuted for it. I didn't partake in sinful behaviors, and I got beat down for it. Specifically in those times, you should see that you are not alone. This is precisely what happened to Jesus Christ. So look to Christ. He is the solution. He is the source of hope and encouragement. He is the example. What happened to him in his suffering is happening to you in your suffering. Don't be surprised by it. In fact, this is what you were called. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what being a Christian is all about. Point three. What happens when your suffering is a result of your sin? How about the suffering of death? Jesus provides the solution to all of it. Sin brings about suffering. Sin brings about death. Christ became a slave and suffered for us and then ultimately died on a cross giving his full life and body so that we could have a solution to sin, suffering, and ultimately slavery too. Look at these verses in verses 22 and following. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Earlier, Angela read for us Isaiah 53. I hope it's obvious when you put Isaiah 53 next to this passage that Peter is referencing and alluding to it four different times. He's applying that poem in Isaiah to Jesus and saying that because of what Jesus did on the cross, you now are a part of the renewed people of God, the Israel of God, and that now what was accomplished through Christ is applied to you. The picture that Peter paints for us is actually quite helpful. He says, he left us an example to follow in his steps. And the word example is for a model that you have and then you trace over it. So in Roman, Greco-Roman culture, uh, if you're learning the alphabet, you would have the letters of the alphabet. And then you would have a little way to trace over the letters. And that's the word he used to say here. Jesus Christ is the supreme model in his suffering. Your life is to be like a trace over it. You're supposed to be like an imitation copy of Jesus. The reason that this is important is because Peter's purpose here is not primarily to give us a theology lesson about Isaiah 53 or about Jesus. He assumes all of those things. 
He assumes that Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in Jesus. That's an amazing theology lesson of the Old and New Testament. It's amazing to see all of the descriptions about Jesus. But his purpose in all of this is to teach you and I how to live, how to trace our lives after the model of Christ. And he gives us five steps about Christ. That you and I are united to him like a mirrored image, like a perfect copy. And in this way, I need you to understand that the use of Isaiah 53 is not just about what Jesus accomplished, but what is now true of us if we would put our faith and trust in him. Step number one, if you're going to carefully, like a little kid, trace your dad's steps in the sand and just put your foot right after them, step number one is commit no sin. He committed no sin. Follow the steps of Jesus by committing no sin. And then he further elaborates this by saying, neither was deceit found in his mouth. To follow Jesus is to commit no sin. And how many of you would say, uh, that's not going so well. This is a problem. I think I sinned this morning. I think I sinned yesterday. I think I sinned Friday. I sinned Thursday. I s- Wait, I'm sinning a lot. Am I following Jesus? If you get so insular and look at yourself, you will never see the glories of this text. The purpose of using Isaiah 53 is to say that his perfect, sinless record is being attached to you. The solution of sin is not you stopping sinning, Although that will happen as a result, we'll get to that. For now, notice that we need a human that commits no sin, no deceit found in his mouth, so that you will be united to his sinless record. Isaiah 53 is where a single individual represents the entire people and the victory of that suffering servant, the benefits of what he does, gets applied to all of the people. That's what Isaiah is saying. You need to understand that Peter is thinking that way and that he knows that there are sinners that need to be told that there is freedom from all of your sins, past sins, present sins, future sins because of the perfect record of his sinless life. Do you see why the solution to everything we've been talking about is look at Christ. He is yours. Jesus is mine. He is yours and mine and ours We're union with him. When we eat his bread and drink his blood, we become in him and he becomes in us. It's what he said earlier in the chapter when he said, Christ is the living stone and we are the living stones. Which one is it? It's both. We're united to him, the chief cornerstone. And we make spiritual sacrifices through him. Peter assumes this idea of union with Christ because of his use of Isaiah 53 and everything that he's been saying and everything he's going to say. So realize that when you look at Christ, everything about him is applied to you. Have you ever confessed sin that way? I just talked in a deceitful way. Father, forgive me of my sin and the many ways that my tongue has caused sin. And thank you 
for the forgiveness of sins, not just to try again, but to have given to me Jesus' perfect record. Have you ever thought of confessing sin that way? You should. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Step one, look to Christ and see that he never sinned, not even once. Second step, he did not repay evil for evil, but he entrusted himself to the judge. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I mean, this is both helpful, practically speaking, and in a substitutionary sense, Jesus did this for you. He is not just a model where you should say, okay, do that. Don't sin again. Trust God. He actually didn't sin, and he actually trusted God every moment of the way, and you are united to that trust. That's your trust. If you are in Christ, by faith, turning to him, looking to him, being in awe of him, having your heart changed by him, that's your trust. Commit no sin. Trust the judge who judges justly. If you're suffering injustice, is it helpful to know that justice will be paid on the cross or an eternal punishment? That there will not be a single sin that is not accounted for either on the cross or God's final judgment? Absolutely, that's helpful. So entrust yourself to the judge who judges justly. Step three, he carried, he bore the sins of others. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He bore and carried the sins. This is again a direct quote from Isaiah 53. And he took on sins. He who knew no sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He knew no sin, but he became sin. He who was the ultimate free being in all of the universe became a slave. He who was great and infinite finitely limited himself into a human body. Not just any human body, the body of a suffering servant. He bore sins. He became sin. He carried the cross. The cross represented the weight of God's wrath against sinners, and he carried it. If you're carrying the weight of your sin around, it's because you have not looked to Christ as the one who bore all sins on the cross. And in fact, one of the things I think Peter's encouraging his audience to do is not just see that their sins are forgiven, but they can be the agent of Christ in the world so that they can carry the sins for other people, not in the same way. Not in a salvific way, but in a witness too that when a servant suffers for doing good and they forgive instead of repay evil for evil, they're demonstrating what Christ did on the cross. And you can do that too. Every time you forgive someone, you are carrying the sin instead of making them pay for it. I forgive you. 
I won't make you pay for that. I'll take the pay for that sin. Do you realize the cost that you must be willing to endure if you're willing to forgive? Jesus understood the cost and he bore every single sin and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Step four, notice that the way Christ's death and his wounds, so things that we would associate negatively, turned and resulted into life and healing. He died on a cross so that you could die and live to righteousness. Do you notice the play there that Peter does? Death leads to life. Wounds bring about healing. Step four is to realize that if Christ's death bore sins and all your sins are paid for, then his resurrection, his ascension, his you're seated at the Father's right hand is yours now in Jesus Christ. You must come to terms with the idea that your suffering now is temporary and momentary like Christ's suffering on the earth and on the cross and that week of the Passion Week. It's over for him. He's not suffering on the cross anymore. It's done. It's finished. He was taken down. He was put into the grave. He was buried for three days. He stayed dead and then he rose again and he has new life. That's yours. Wounds bring about healing. Death brings about life. So you get united to death so that you can live. Live in righteousness. Being able to actually do step one to a certain degree. Not perfectly, not like Jesus, but definitely growing in godliness where you do have the Holy Spirit's power to live in righteousness. He's not even stating it as like a, you should do this. He's stating the reality of what is in the gospel. This is what Jesus did do already. The struggle we have with sin is so often not because of 10 steps we failed to do or these sort of things that we need to learn. It has primarily to do with our heart being grasped by the beauty and the goodness of the power of resurrection. The solution for sin is Christ's committing no sin, not repaying evil for evil, bearing the sins on the cross, his death turning into resurrection, his wounds bringing about healing. The fifth and final step is the last verse of our text. And it brings us to a close, not just of the paragraph, but of the sermon. Does this describe you? For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Step five, turn. Not just turn, but return. Come to him. See how beautiful Christ is to put himself in this earth as an infant, growing in wisdom and stature, never once having a lustful thought, never once having an ill-advised word out of his mouth, never once having a, a plan or a heart desire that was crooked in any way. Never once using money or material possessions for his own good, but for the good of others, always and only doing good, never once sinning. 
How amazing is Jesus Christ that he would be able to not just do that, but do it for you so that you would get to the point where you would say, I want that to be my master. The overseer of my soul, the shepherd of my life. The reason that a slave can submit themselves to the master is because they have a better master. And they know that the temporary suffering that they are currently enduring, it will not last forever. And the same victory of Jesus through death that led to resurrection will be theirs because Christ has already risen. I know it's a couple weeks, but brothers and sisters, he is risen. He is still risen indeed. Don't forget it. We live every single Sunday on the Lord's Day Resurrection Sunday. And so now we can turn to him and make him our master. So if you're here today, child, youth, college student, adult, single, married, have you turned to him? Peter's writing to a group of people that he assumes have. You have already now turned to him and he is your master. He has already set you free from sin, its power, its future presence, its penalty is paid. So I want all of you to think through this. The takeaway from this message is, if you have rightly gazed upon who Jesus is, have you received him? Have you cashed in the check? I'm writing the check for you, and here it is. Are you going to put it into the, the bank of your heart and cash it and say, yes. My overseer, my shepherd. This is the solution to slavery, suffering, and sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to bow before the throne again, and we want to now pray that the power of the cross, the good news of Jesus Christ, would be poured into our hearts. We want to pray that we would love what we see in Jesus, his willingness to be a slave, his perfect sinless life his substitutionary death on a cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven to pour out the spirit to give us freeness of life from slavery to our sin and actual slavery to men and women in this world, whether it be a boss or a parent or a tyrant, a government ruler or official that wants to claim manipulative hold over us. Oh God, we have the great gift of Jesus Christ, the overseer and shepherd of our soul. And we want to pray that every single one of us would either return again afresh today to Christ or some of us in this room for the very first time would turn to Jesus, put their faith in him, put their trust in him, unite their self with him. God, would you do this work through the word of the living God, piercing hearts, convicting of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.